Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you, Skylight Books. We're really pleased and honored that this last, one of the last of the great local community bookstores, yes, invited us to make this presentation. So thank you for that. And also thank you to Michael, uh, who allowed me to participate in this book. It's really more his book. It's his baby, I'm just the midwife, (laughs) so to speak. I helped him out uh, getting it done and uh, contributed to it. Uh, and however, in order to earn my with credit, uh, Mike has enlisted me to do some of these presentations. So here I am. Now, um, Mike and I, Michael, Mike, Michael, slash Michael, uh, and I, um, we're not Silver Lake chauvinists. Okay, we're not proprietary about Silver Lake. We know Silver Lake overlaps with Echo Park, Franklin Hills, Las Feliz, etc. There's kind of a continuum, if you will, of these various communities that interact uh, with one another. But there is something distinctive uh, about Silver Lake uh, that we tried to focus on uh, in this book. But there hasn't been any book about Silver Lake yet. There have been books about Echo Park wonderful book by the late Ron Emler called Ghosts of Echo Park, which may be available here in the bookstore, and two books already on Las Feliz that I'm sure are available here as well by Donald Zelikman, and I think a third may be on the way, but nothing as yet on Silver Lake until now. Okay. So, <clears throat> I think I'm going to begin the more formal presentation with a quote that actually comes from my other book, um, Land of Smoke and Mirrors that was mentioned earlier, which was about Los Angeles in general. It's a quote by John Bunton, a major Los Angeles historian who wrote, other cities have histories, Los Angeles has legends, unquote. To which John Russell Taylor, another LA historian, added, most of LA's legends are true even when they're contradictory, unquote. Now, Silver Lake partakes in this legendary aspect of Los Angeles because it's steeped in legend also, beginning with the story of how the larger uh, area known as Edendale, apropos the Edendale Library, Edendale Post Office, Edendale Grill uh, on Rowena, uh, and several of the area's streets and other places, including one of Silver Lake's reservoirs and elementary schools, how they got their names. There's a legendary aspect to that. And the legend is tied to a young Scotsman named Hugo Reed. And a famous romance novel from the 1820s by Sir Walter Scott titled Ivanhoe that was required reading for me when I was growing up in Van Nuys. Uh, Reed was born in 1811, came to the Americas as a young man uh, in the late 1820s, spending time in South America and Mexico before eventually settling in Los Angeles in 1834. And this is somewhat as it looked in 1834. This is actually from 1869, but it wasn't a much bigger place then than it was uh, in 1834. He set up a store near the Central Plaza of what was then a rough-and-tumble Mexican village of less than 2,000 people. In 1869, it only had about 5,000 people. 
But even by then, in the early American period, the city's population was still only around 5,000. Excuse me, got a little bit off there in terms of this 1869. You know, uh, Los Angeles was Spanish up until 1821, then it became Mexican from 1821 to 1848, and then became part of the United States thereafter. Okay. Uh, now, according to local lore, uh, some of Reed's travels took him to the then still pastoral landscape outside the Los Angeles Pueblo, and he came upon and was struck by the lush hills and valleys of the later named Edendale Silver Lake area, which might have looked somewhat like that in those days, which couldn't help but remind Reed, the romantic that he was, of the similar verdant landscape of his home country of Scotland. The resemblance and nostalgic tug, local lore continues, led Reed to unofficially dub the paradisical area Edendale. Now whether the story is true or apocryphal, what is indisputable is the Scottish influence of the names in the area first designated as such in the 1880s, many of them tied to Walter Scott's famous novel, with which Reed was no doubt familiar. The names extend beyond the Ivanhoe Tract, established by that name in the 1880s as LA's population surged, and later named Ivanhoe Reservoir and Elementary School, and to numerous streets such as Scott, a la Sir Walter Scott, Rowena, after the novel's heroine, Kenilworth, Angus, Waverly, Ben Lomond, Inverness, I just discovered, and I'm just newly discovering new Scottish names as I drive around, and maybe you know others. We discovered and even Scotland itself, yes. And Reed's mythic influence in L.A. goes even further. Reed fell in love with a Gabrieleno Tongva Indian, as they were called, and still are called today, uh, Donna Victoria, who had thrived since her emancipation, as they called it, from the San Gabriel Mission in the 1820s. Here's a picture of the mission, uh, painted, I think, around that time, if I'm not mistaken, not much later. Uh, and she possessed, did Donna Victoria, through her tribal leader husband, Pablo Maria, one of the rare land grants offered to Native American peoples, despite promises that all the mission lands should go to them eventually, which they did not. When Victoria's much older husband died in 1837, Reed converted to Catholicism, married Victoria, and adopted her children. The Reed's already large property holdings expanded in the 1840s through another land grant from Mexican-California Mexican Governor P.O. Pico, the last governor of Mexican-era California, who was also, as were majority, by the way, of El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles's first settlers of part African heritage. Here is Hugo and Victoria's hacienda, in Rancho Santa Anita as it looks today. But although Victoria was privileged by wealth and marriage to an Anglo, she had not forgotten the hard times at the mission or the ongoing struggles of her fellow Gabrieleno Tongva and other California Indians. And based on Victoria's experience and his own awareness, Reed wrote a series of stirring letters printed in the Los Angeles Star newspaper in 1852 detailing the Indians' plight. Reed died the same year at 41. But besides his legendary contribution to the area's names, his legacy survived in still mythic but more documented fashion when three decades later in 1884, noted author Helen Hunt Jackson 
published her international bestseller, Ramona. This tale of a tragic romance between a half-Indian woman and a full Indian man was clearly based, through Jackson's research, on Hugo and Victoria Reed, as the fictional Ramona's mother was a Gabrieleno Mission Indian and her father a Scottish seaman. Although the book was intended to draw attention to the Indian's plight and spur reform, its highly romanticized depiction of Mexican ranchero period and Spanish fantasy past led instead to a tourist and in-migration boom, further exploited, ironically and hypocritically, by L.A.'s Anglo-Protestant elite and their main mouthpiece, the L.A. Times quite conservative in those days. So powerful was Ramona's influence that together with new rail lines, a major oil boom, and a flourishing agriculture industry, the novel Ramona, and thus indirectly Hugo and Victoria Reed as well, contributed substantially to Los Angeles's phenomenal growth in the late 1800s, unprecedented in the world at that time, and early 1900s, which saw the city's population surge from a little over 11,000 in 1880 to over 324,000 in 1910, with no heading back. By 1920, there were over 500,000 in L.A., and it had surpassed San Francisco as the state's biggest city. And by 1930, it had over a million residents. So much for the legend of Edendale and Scottish street names. But what about Silver Lake itself? No mystery there, of course. We all know Silver Lake derives from the larger of the two reservoirs' sparkling silvery waters, as shown here, right? No cheating now, you, the, the, you those who know for sure. Is that where Silver Lake got its name, from the silvery waters? No, boo, hiss, no. The mystery lies elsewhere, but it is supported this time by solid documentation. Credit for the name Silver Lake goes mainly to two other European immigrants, one Irish, William Mulholland, and the other German-Jewish, Herman Silver. Mulholland is most famous as the first head of the publicly owned, since 1898, L.A. Water Company, later DWP, and most especially as chief engineer of the Mammoth Owens River Aqueduct, completed in 2013. Famous picture here, and of course Mulholland's famous line, there it is, take it. Mulholland also, however, oversaw the design and construction of the Silver Lake and Ivanhoe Reservoirs from 1904 to 1907. In fact, they just commemorated that at the Silver Lake Reservoir just a few weeks uh, or maybe months now ago. The larger of these reservoirs, of course, which uh, Mulholland recommended naming after Herman Silver. Silver was the first president of the Board of Water Commissioners but his resume goes beyond this last of his public offices. A savvy businessman and progressive public servant, Silver ardently opposed slavery and befriended Abraham Lincoln. He later became treasurer of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad in Colorado and of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad in San Bernardino and later Los Angeles. He arrived here in 1887, an auspicious moment for a railroad man, as this was just two years after the Santa Fe Railroad had helped spark L.A.'s population surge through its completion of a second transcontinental line that started a um, rate war. 
Silver went on to become, <coughs> excuse me, president of the LA City Council and just missed becoming mayor before his appointment to the Water Commission. Here's Silver Lake Reservoir in 1927, closer to what we know as we know it today, and hopefully may know again tomorrow, minus the ugly barbed wire fence that exists there now, uh, because as many of you may know, the reservoirs are soon to be converted to recreational use. They've been decommissioned as reservoirs. How many of you know that? Good, didn't know that? Okay, yes. That's a big um, prospect for tremendous change and for the better in Silver Lake. Uh, with many planned environmental improvements as well. Keep your fingers crossed. Before Silver Lake got its reservoirs, or its name, however, it already boasted a few pioneer residents. And that's one of the major contributions of this book. Among the first were the Banatamans and the Pazarinis, Stemming originally from the Austrian Tyrol, the Bananamans were compelled in the 1860s to emigrate to Mexico during that country's attempted neo-colonial takeover by Napoleon III of France. Inspired, by the way, by the U.S.'s takeover of half of Mexico a few years earlier in the Mexican-American War. Here's Silver Lake... Whoops. Going in the wrong direction here. Where, where are we here? Okay. Uh, Napoleon III of France, here he is. Napoleon III had sent troops to Mexico in 1861 and then installed Austro-Hungarian Emperor France, Joseph I's brother Maximilian, as a puppet ruler. Maximilian and his wife Carlotta reigned precariously from 1864 to 1867 while an indigenous rebellion led by Benito Juarez raged with the support, by the way, of, of the U.S., in this case, after we ripped off half of Mexico, now we're, we, were, didn't, we wanted to keep the French out because it was the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine, our sphere of influence, etc., etc. There were other reasons, but those were significant ones. After all, we had just okay, already hammered home that political point. Okay. During this period, the Banatamans, along with hundreds of Austrian families, settled in Mexico, also precariously, both from the military conflict that raged around them and the difficulty in making a living. When the family attempted to move to Texas, however, they were arrested by Maximilian's forces, then freed by Carlotta, just in time, as Maximilian would be captured and executed by Juarez's forces soon thereafter. The Banatamans remained in Mexico until 1885, moving first to Texas, then to Los Angeles in 1887 and eventually to the later named Silver Lake section of Edendale. And this is what their 60-acre ranch looked like in 1889 in Silver Lake, located above what would later become Sunset Boulevard, between what's today Angeles Street and Benton Way. And here's Carlo Banataman, elder son of the matriarch and patriarch Moira and Emmanuel Banataman, thrashing hay on the ranch in 1900. Again, just above Sunset Boulevard in Silver Lake. This is also where the Pazzarinis enter the picture, as Carlo would marry Domenica Pazzarini, whose family had migrated to L.A. from Texas around the same time. Carlo and Domenica had four children, some of them on display here and here on a family outing circa 1900. Here's Moira Banataman, the matriarch of the family, feeding chickens at the old ranch. Moira's granddaughter, Mary, 
Fortunately, not only kept these old photos, but also meticulous written records of the family, which provided much of the material for this section of the book. Some of Mary's colorful photo, uh, stories relate to the family's interaction with the fledgling L.A. movie industry, which was just emerging around this time, which began setting up shop in Edendale in the 1910s. Before Hollywood, there was Edendale, where the movie industry began. Indeed, the local industry would initially be centered here, not in Hollywood, and we'll talk more about that later. Here, the Manadamans farm, doubled as a set for Max Sennett's crew, more on him later, with starlet Dorothy Davenport on the left getting ready for her close-up. Here, what looks like a rehearsal for the same film on the Benadaman Pasarini ranch, and here, their rented house being burned down as part of the same or another film. Mary reports crying as a child over this incident as she watched the old house they had lived in for so many years, quote, going up in smoke, unquote. By this time, Carlo's family had moved to less rural quarters, and their new house at 1533 McCullum, which still stands today. Indeed, uh, another of our book's contributions, I think, are the list of addresses for historical locations like this that you can use to go to and spot them uh, yourself. Then there are the Watsons, another of the area's earliest and most illustrious pioneer families, the first and second generation of which are depicted here. The parents, James Watson and Amy Kate Bell, also were immigrants, he from England, she from Canada, and both were Salvation Army evangelists. We fudge a little here geographically as the Watsons' first home was technically in Echo Park, near Echo Park Avenue, though some members later moved to the Echo Park-Silver Lake border. Neither of these township names existed then, of course. Then again, as a map expert with the public library stated as late as 2012, quote, as far as Echo Park-Silver Lake boundaries go, I have never been able accurately to figure it out. And uh, once, you, uh, once you go in those hills, you know, never know where you'll end up, unquote. And Mike and I well know from personal experience with working with the neighborhood councils, uh, one of the major debates between Echo Park and Silver Lake was what the boundaries are or should be. You know, they're not officially really determined. Uh, so we came to some compromise uh, that neither side was necessarily absolutely happy with. Anyway, that to the ambiguity of where, is Silver Lake, where does Silver Lake end, where does Echo Park begin, or vice versa. Uh, <clears throat> Okay, similar to the Benadamans, the Watsons were well situated to participate in the film industry, which had established two major studios, Selick Polyscope and Max Sennett's Keystone Company, more on both of those later, on Glendale Boulevard. More than offering their property as a set, however, the Watsons would provide horses and children as performers as well. Here are Coy Watson Sr. Uh, and I don't know the name of the horse or dog, and I don't think Michael does either. Here, the burgeoning brood of Coy Sr. and Golda. Ultimately, the various Watsons would appear in over 1,000 movies and TV shows in the uh, into the 1940s and beyond. They have justifiably been called the first family of Hollywood and received a collective star on the Hollywood star Walk of Fame in 1999. The most famous of the bunch was Bob's Watson. Look him up. 
shown here with Spencer Tracy in Boys Town, major film of 1938. And Tracy allegedly remarked after seeing Bob's crying scene on the left, there goes my chance for another Academy Award. Good, got a chuckle out of somebody here. Um, The Watsons, not only shown in front of the camera, but behind it as well, though more in the journalistic than entertainment arena. Here is first son George, also the first to make a name for himself in photography, as the first staff photographer of the LA Times in 1917. Six other Watsons followed George's lead to become full-time photographers, calling themselves somewhat acrobatically the Six Watson Brothers. Now, I've tantalized you up till now, uh, skirting the edges of the film industry. Now to flesh things out a bit, pun intended, with this image. Does anybody recognize this jovial gentleman? Anybody? $64,000 question. No? Nobody can except those who know the answers. Okay, this happens to be... And you're not alone, by the way, in not knowing. Uh, He just happens to be the founding father of Hollywood in the generic sense of the movie industry. This is none other than William Zellick, Colonel William Zellick, also known as. He was the first major filmmaker to move his Zellick Polyscope Company permanently to the West from the East Coast, where film production, I think you know, had begun in the late 1890s and remained centered until the 1910s. After briefly filming downtown, he built his first full-fledged studio in L.A. On 1800 Glendale Boulevard in Echo Park Silver Lake in 1909. Other firsts for Zellick include the first feature-length film made in the U.S., the first horror film, the first films with authentic cowboys and Indians, the first cliffhanger films, the first jungle adventure films, and decades ahead of its time, the first movie studio-based theme park. This uh, he opened in 1913 in East LA's Lincoln Park area, and the park featured a well-stocked zoo, some of whose animals doubled as performers in his jungle films, such as this one. The theme park never fully gelled, and Zellick's studio also fell into decline and ceased production in 1918. Here's the site of the old Zellick studio as it looks today, across from the massive development under construction just south of the 2 freeway. You've seen that. Which, mistakenly, I've been told, this is rumor, falsely promotes itself as existing directly on the Zellick lot, but it's really across the street from it. Following on Zellick's heels in the early 1910s was Max Sennett's Keystone Film Company, here under construction just down the street from Zellick Polyscope at 1712 Glendale, now a storage facility, and they're about to put up a new plaque there to acknowledge it. Finally, they had another plaque across the street somewhere. It was in the wrong location. Now, finally, I think next week, they're going to have a ceremony to rededicate a plaque for uh, where Max Sennett Studios once was. Now, it was named for the hugely popular Keystone Cops. You've probably seen at least some clips of the Keystone Cops along the way. Um, And Senate would be known to posterity primarily for the slapstick-style comedy he developed through the Keystone Cops and others, and the long list of major stars he discovered. We can't list them all, including Charlie Chaplin, 
Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, Gloria Swanson, should have asked you to name these people, what? and can you name this person? One of the, the biggest comedy star of the 1910s was Mabel Normand, appeared in many films with Charlie Chaplin, Roscoe Arbuckle, etc. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Norman would also become Max Sennett's lover and almost bride. Both their romantic and business relationships went aground, however, when Sennett, on their wedding night in 1915, was caught in bed with, of all people, one of Norman's acting rivals, May Bush. Ooh, 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 hiss. Yes. I was May Bush's brother. Oh. <laughs> No, that's somebody else. <laughs> that's, okay, that's another story. That's, uh, uh, okay, anyway, uh, but art didn't quite imitate life in this instance, as Senate's and Norman's first full-length comedy, made around this time, filmed in the new studio Senate had just built for his fiancée at 1512 Bates Avenue, right around the corner here, went on to become a hit, did Mickey, as has the studio, after nearly a century's hiatus, as this headline in Variety affirmed. Just recently, 2013 uh, um, headline. The studio reopened for film production under the ownership of Jesse Rogg in 2013. There's Jesse and White with his entourage. And the studio, besides having film production, is very community-minded and holds many uh, fundraisers for the community there as well, as well as renovating and preserving the studios. Hats off to Jesse. <clears throat> now, we previously mentioned Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. How many of you have heard of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle? A little bit. Okay. Now... He was one of the actors uh, that Max Sennett made a star. He actually appeared first uh, with Zelik. Uh, but if you know anything about Fatty's fate, you know that this image is not the most appropriate representation of it. In the mid to late 1910s, Arbuckle was one of the most popular film comics up there with Charlie Chaplin, rivaled only by Charlie Chaplin, and the highest paid movie star of his day, even surpassing Mary Pickford. His fame and fortune instantly crumbled in 1921, however, when after a wild weekend San Francisco spree, he was accused of having raped a young starlet, Virginia Rappé, leading to her death. The Yellow Press had a field day with the case labeling it the crime and the trial of the century, from which, however, Arbuckle emerged fully exonerated. Rappé actually died from complications of a previous bladder condition. There was no sign of rape and exacerbated by excessive amounts of drugs and alcohol. But the damage to Arbuckle's reputation and Hollywood in general was done. For Arbuckle's was only the biggest, literally, of a series of high-profile scandals rocking Hollywood in the 1910s and 1920s, uh, another which struck down Mabel Norman herself. This is when the movie capital's Sin City nickname really came to the fore. And with government censorship of the movies looming, the studio moguls hired Will Hayes, a Presbyterian deacon, and it was significant that he was not Jewish, as most of the moguls were, and were very sensitive about that in an anti-Semitic America. And the postmaster general, <coughs> excuse me, he was both a Presbyterian deacon and the postmaster general in the Harding 
administration, one of the most corrupt administrations of all time, by the way, but he was uh, not tainted by that. And these political connections, as they do today, to the head of the Motion Picture Association of America, which this was the forerunner of it, uh, also you need those political connections, and they generally come from washing the heads of those, in, uh, uh, as they are today. Uh, former, former Senator Dodd is now the head of the Motion Picture Association of America. Will Hayes was the first head of that uh, organization, essentially. Uh, and he was intended to clean up Hollywood, both behind the screen and on the screen. And to show he meant business about cleaning house, his first act was to ban Arbuckle from the screen for life. Whoops. There we go. How, how did I do that? Okay. No more pictures for Fatty. Now he did make a few and he directed a few under a pseudonym. Uh, and after 10 years, enough water under the bridge, uh, Hayes was going to let him make some more significant films. Um, see, where are we here? And he was actually poised for a comeback. He actually filmed a series of six comedy shorts for Warner Brothers, which was now one of the biggest studios in the early 1930s, at the beginning of the sound era, which finally could have showcased uh, Arbuckle's operatic quality voice. It was so good, in fact, that Caruso himself, upon hearing Roscoe sing, told him that if he gave up this slapstick nonsense, he could become the second, second greatest tenor in the world. Alas, it was not to be. A few days after filming the last of the six shorts, and with a feature film contract in hand, Arbuckle died of a heart attack. He was 46 years old. One of Yes. I know Jerry Stoll has written a book on this, but I've forgotten. Was Arbuckle doing drugs with that girl, or how did that There were drugs at the party. There were drugs. It was prohibition, and they were doing booze and drugs, as many Hollywood people were. And in fact, Warren Harding, the president himself, was noted, known for imbibing whiskey in the White House during prohibition. You know. So, but I, that's not your question. Did he, did he, was he no, I mean they just brought some women along, had a party. Uh, he was not in his room, but she was, she was inebriated. She had peritonitis. Uh, yeah, she had a pre-existing condition. No, problem. Our mm, <coughs> buckle was known not to be really a, a womanizer in that sense. One of the attendees of female they, they were out to get him, get money, blackmail, and so on. They, again, there's been lots written about it, uh, and there are still some open questions about it, but it, it's pretty clear, you know, that he, he, she did not die because of him having sex with her, uh, and whether he even had sex with her is questionable. Okay, yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's see, where are we here? Uh, so again, tragic story, and, and I think Michael has said that they're planning again and again. I mean, there's so many wonderful actors who could play, you know, Fatty in a film, and it, I even wrote a screenplay at one point. There are probably a million screenplays on this out there, but apparently it's it's getting close to being made. Do you know who the actor might be or anything? No. Okay. Yeah. We'll get to that. Hold on. Okay. Cart before the horse here. Well, you might be asking, what is the Silver Lake connection here? So that's coming up. Uh, now, where are we here? Uh, so he was 46 old. Pardon? 
he was 46 year old and he died of a heart attack just before he was you know going to have a comeback and with his voice you know could have become a great star uh but still in spite of that ban and so on and there was probably anticipation of him coming back and so on thousands of fans lined the streets for his funeral in los angeles uh, and you you can pay your respects yourself by visiting one of his houses and there's one right here in Silver Lake. The one shown here is at 1383 Lucille. And, it's at the, and there's another uh, at the corner of Figaro and Adams, bordering the Doheny Mansion and Mount St. Mary's College near USC. And there might be others as well. Those are the two we know about. Now, another famous movie star house. Yes, ma'am. Did the ladies buy up this house because they were so loud at the party? Yes, he was a partier. And I think he had six Rolls Royces. He did live the Hollywood li high life, uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and wasn't there something about what he had in his, one of those cars, a bar, and I mean, all sorts of stuff? <laughs> Swimming pool, and no. Oh, okay. Boy. All right. Uh, by the way, this is my wife, Karen, who's, who contributed significantly to the research of the book, as you can tell. She knows more than we do. Yeah. Okay. So, um, now the one shown... Okay, another famous movie star house you can see nearby is Tom Mix's Silver Lake home, still standing at 1614 Golden Gate, just off of Sunset. Uh, yeah, okay, we can move on to this. Mix was the king of the cowboys. If Senate, you know, was the king of comedy producers. Mix was the king of the cowboys during the silent era. Here, here he's with his fourth wife, Victoria Ford, and the famous Japanese-American actor, Sesua Hayakawa. Uh, and this was when Westerns, along with slapstick comedies, were the most popular of all genres uh, in the United States and even worldwide. Uh, he got his start at Mix, as had Arbuckle and many others, with Zelik Polyscope, and eventually had his very own studio, a complete Western set, on Glendale Boulevard, where the Ralph's Market Shopping Center now stands. And here is the Mixville, as it was called, Mixville lot, and I assume, you know, this is Glendale, probably over here, you know, I would think, and the reservoir is maybe in between those two hills. There, doesn't it? Isn't that probably? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's what uh, Mixville and that's what the Ralph's Market complex looked like uh, in the 1910s. And and here's a token reminder of the Mixville studio in a shopping center uh, that now houses Ralph's Market and the CVC drugstore, soon to be. Whole Foods, I think they're closing in March. And by the way, a little plug for Ralph's Market or for shoppers everywhere. I think they're going to have discounts for the next month selling out before Whole Foods comes in. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and I've been told by old-time residents that a trailer park once graced this area as well. <clears throat> and another token reminder of the studio, though probably few people recognize it as such, but you will now, is the Mix Lofts sign on the Silver Lake Boulevard side of the condominium complex across from Bank of America and the Ralph's Market and all that, you know that condominium, has a sign, Mix Lofts. Okay, a little historical uh, awareness on their part. Now, a less macho side of the early film industry is prominently represented in Silver Lake as well. 
no doubt contributing to the area having once been called Bohemian Hill and my favorite, the Swish Alps. Glad you get it. My students never get that. Uh, were figures such as Julian Eltinge, the greatest female impersonator in the history of the American stage. World-renowned and a hit on vaudeville, the Broadway stage, and Hollywood film, Eltinge denied his gayness, had to really for career survival purposes uh, at that time. Eltinge thus felt compelled to, and he, he not only denied it, but he felt compelled to emphasize his manliness behind the scenes, engaging in barroom brawls and even staging a boxing match with heavyweight champion gentleman Jim Corbett. One of his comments, however, hinted at the truth. I'm not gay, I just like pearls, unquote. His fame began to fade in the 1930s as rising homophobia and Hollywood censorship turned what had been wholesome family entertainment for decades into something more risque and risky. During his heyday in the early 1920s, however, Eltinge built a spectacular Swish Alps chalet named Villa Capistrano, which not only still stands at 2327 Fargo, street, but stands out, out when viewed from the west side of the lake. You can see the lake off to the right uh, there in the uh, picture. Another star who had to hide his sexual identity in the silent era was Antonio Moreno. Taking advantage of the Latin lover craze of the 1920s sparked by the Italian Rudolf Valentino, Moreno possessed an undeniable sexual magnetism and charisma a male version of the so-called it quality ascribed by Eleanor Glynn, author, to Clara Bow. Moreno even co-starred in 1927 with the it girl herself in her first starring role aptly titled The It Girl. Moreno played his own Hollywood superstar role to the hilt. Here he is at the Crestmont Mansion, as he named it, atop Mitchell Terena Street in Silver Lake, which he built together with his wife, oil heiress Daisy Canfield, often called the Canfield Moreno Mansion or Moreno Canfield Mansion, etc. Now, the relationship was short-lived, literally, as Daisy died in a car crash shortly after their separation in 1932, and Moreno's Hollywood star career ended with the sound era, as it did for many of those with foreign accents, which turned his Spanish accent into a liability, at least for a star uh, performer. He moved to Mexico, where he could, he could still get star billing and directed some films there. Uh, in the 1950s, however, he returned to Hollywood, appearing in smaller roles, however, including as an Indian in O'Rourke of the Royal Mounted and as a Mexican, I, th I think this is from that, in John Ford's The Searchers, major American film. He died in Beverly Hills in 1967. Minus its illustrious occupants, the Crestmont Mansion went through several permutations, Sold first to the Catholic Church, it became a school for orphaned girls and later a home for orphaned and homeless girls. When it was rendered uninhabitable by the Whittier Narrows earthquake in 1987, the mansion seemed doomed to remain a white elephant despite its historical cultural status until a white knight rode to the rescue. Here she is, Dana Hollister. Related to the legendary Hollister clan of Santa Barbara, she purchased the mansion in 1988, but without any help from her wealthy relatives. A self-made woman with a degree from the Chicago Art Institute, 
Hollister became successful designing shabby chic, as she called them, clothing and pillows. She started a boutique on Beverly Boulevard and began attracting a hip Hollywood clientele, including director Tom Burton, not Tom, Tim Burton. Her connections helped to garner financing for the purchase and massive retrofitting of the mansion. The mansion has since served as a recording studio for major artists and a backdrop for myriad commercials, films, and TV shows. And Hollister has gone on to become a major developer in Silver Lake. Uh, she co-owns, I believe, Cliff's Edge uh, and the Detour Bar. Does that still exist, by the way? It doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right, uh, and in Echo Park, she uh, renovated, uh, you know, upgraded the Bright Spot uh, restaurant, uh, and she owns several hip bars downtown. Her latest plan is to turn the old Bethany and Korean Church and first home of East West Players Theater on Griffith Park Boulevard into a boutique hotel, and she's moving forward with that. But for her preservation of the Crestmont Mansion alone, which she calls the Paramour now, Hollister will ever be one of Silver Lake's local heroes. Another local hero whose philanthropic efforts spread far and wide is George C. Page. Page arrived in L.A. as a young boy in 1917, prompted, he later wrote, by a schoolroom incident. When the teacher passed around a strange, sweet-smelling, round object Page later learned was an orange, he vowed someday to go to the land where the exotic fruit was grown. Soon after arriving in L.A., Page hit upon an idea that would make him a millionaire. He packed oranges and other fruits not available in much of the U.S. at that time, especially during the winter, to send to his family back in Nebraska for Christmas. When other boarders at the rooming house saw what he was doing, they all excitedly paid him to do the same thing for them. Voila! From there, he opened a small shop and before long had hundreds of stores sending exotic fruits and nuts all across the country. The sales were boosted by the company's catchy name, Mission Pack, and here's a test for you, and a catchy jingle that I still remember. And if any of you still remember, please sing along with me. No gift so bright, so gay, so light. Give the mission pack magic way. Is that the number? Oh, wow, you remember that even. Great, wow. Great memory. <laughs> anyway, every Christmas you'd be bombarded with those messages for sure. But it was very catchy and certainly helped the business. Uh, Page met his wife, <clears throat> Celeste, at a social gathering hosted by movie star Charles Boyer and built a house, where else? At 2178 Kenilworth Avenue in Silver Lake that still stands today. And by the way, many of these pictures are by Michael Locke. Deciding as he aged to put his vast wealth to the common good, Page became a major philanthropist. Besides large gifts to Children's Hospital and Loyola Marymount and Pepperdine University, Page's most lasting legacy likely will be another edifice he was responsible for building, one that bears his name and that you've likely been to even if only in a field trip. Here's another image of the entrance to the museum at the La Brea Tar Pits. Uh, as for the next item on the agenda. May I just ask you, he looked as though he were an African-American, which, no, no, okay, I'm not. African-American background, I mean, he does. Okay, sorry, picture of him, picture of him there. 
Well, you know. He's very white. Okay. No, he's. He looks dark complected there, yeah, certainly, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, recognize this edifice. Have to be from another planet. If you're from this area, not to be aware of this building. That's the Angelus Temple in Echo Park, right? Um, now, you may think that now we're stretching the boundaries a little bit too far to consider this part of Silver Lake, and you'd be right on that score, but you would be wrong on another because Silver Lake again steals some of the thunder because this was Amy Semple McPherson, the founder of Angelus Temple's house in Silver Lake. Do we have the address here? I should have it. Yes, 1982 Mitchell Terrena Street. So up from the Moreno Mansion there. Uh, now more than just makeshift quarters, uh, the house, according to neighbors, was the site of several baptisms performed by M.A. in her backyard swimming pool. She also reportedly had a mirror attached to the ceiling in her master bedroom, not altogether inappropriate given Aimee's notoriously colorful career. More about that to come. Sister M.A. was the country's first woman preacher of any note, the first to have her own radio station, with her Angelus Temple a forerunner of today's mega churches. Hollywood stars came to the services, likely more to witness and perhaps learn from her theatrics uh, than for communion with the Lord. I don't know, I haven't interviewed them, but likely it was more for these, those purposes, such as this. Here she's fighting evil incarnate. <laughs> uh, now, ultimately, the flair for excess almost got the best of Amy. In 1926, she mysteriously disappeared at first, it was thought she'd been kidnapped, not by King Kong, necessarily. And her safe ret uh, return soon thereafter was taken by some of her faithful as a miraculous quasi-resurrection. And here's one of the photos taken by one of the people at the church. Okay, got a few chuckles out of that one. Okay. Uh, no, it's ac it actually might be by George Watson, you know, the photographer. Okay. Uh, Okay, however, at another trial of the century that captured media attention across the country, evidence pointed to M.A. as actually having gone off for a tryst with her married radio engineer with whom she was having an affair. A bedrock of loyal supporters allowed her ministry not only to continue, however, but to thrive, as seen here in her actual triumphant return to Los Angeles soon thereafter. All was more than just a showcase for Sister M.A., however. Her International Church of the Four Square Gospel always had a strong social conscience and from its inception and ongoing is devoted to helping the poor and underprivileged. Most recently, the church has teamed with Matthew Barnett's similarly socially-minded Assemblies of God Church housed in the Dream Center along the 101 freeway in Silver Lake. can hardly miss it if you go along the 101 freeway. <clears throat> now, the Dream Center, uh, they're a separate church from MA's church, uh, but they hold their services now in Angelus Temple rather than the Foursquare Church holding their services there. Uh, and I've heard, and Michael can vouch for it, very much uphold Sister MA's theatrical tradition. Now, I think that's pretty much it. We can only hope that our little book was at least mildly entertaining and enlightening and hopefully whets your appetite to give it a gander. Thank you. Now, do we have any questions?
We've already had some. Any more? <laughs> We've already had quite a few interesting ones. So, uh, but are there, if there are any more, well, can, we, can uh, we maybe guess what do you think is the future of Silver Lake, and then what do you think is going to happen? Well, we know that the okay. reservoir is changing. Yes, that's going to be a big potentially big and very positive change, I think, not only for Silver Lake, because it's, it's part of an ongoing environmental consciousness about what should be done with water in California and the world. Uh, and there are many good people working on that with the Silver Lake Conservancy that's been around for 20 years, uh, trying to make it as environmentally friendly and recreationally useful as well. But I think very significant on the literary front is Michael and I are now together going to be coming up with a sequel to this book, Silver Lake Chronicles 2, working title at this moment, but it'll focus more on the Bohemian, the Swish Alps aspect of Silver Lake, even digging deeper into that. The Bohemian aspect, the art aspect, people like Anais Nin lived here, James Leo Hurley, noted author, uh, many other, and Mike, who's Michael, whose um, expertise is modernist architecture, is going to be focusing on the modernist architecture, which we really don't treat much at all uh, in this book. So, Mike. Why don't you say a few words? So, looking forward to the second book. It's so, it's so much work. I, it's the first book I've written, and that's why I leaned on Vince, who I'd known for a long time and who's been so helpful, and, and Karen in, in the research. But it's a lot of fun to do, and I'm really anxious to get the, the next one out, and I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.